we're not talking about some cool new tech system that you know, we can buy. We're talking about a predatory software ecosystem. And, and make no mistake, this is highly organized crime. And it's currently, unfortunately, it's, it's more efficient, it's more effective at holding us hostage and extorting payments than the organizations are at managing that risk. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Colonial Pipeline, JBS, companies most of us never heard of until they hit the front page because they were attacked with ransomware. Their problem quickly became our problem as we saw gas shortages along the East Coast and empty meat cases at our grocery stores. Some experts predict we will experience 65,000 ransomware attacks in 2021 alone. It's hard to talk about data protection, cybersecurity, disaster recovery, data backups, without sounding like we're fear-mongering. The stories of attacks do grab headlines. The attacks impact those well beyond the victim company themselves. To help you protect your organization and those who depend upon your product or service, InterVision thinks in terms of a two-pronged approach, preventative and restorative. Preventative to prevent the attack in the first place and restorative to recover after an attack. Our guest, Derek Bros the Director of Security and Compliance Professional Services here at InterVision, spends the majority of his time on the preventative side of this issue. Today, we're going to talk about the other prong, restorative measures. Derek, welcome to Status Go. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Jeff. It's always great to speak with you. Oh, I'm always looking forward to it. Man, we don't get a chance to talk often enough, and this time the mic's on, so that's even that's even go. cooler. <laughs> I, I know you've been a guest here before on Status Go at least a couple of times, and, and I know you also spent time in the host chair on at <laughs> least one episode, maybe two. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. So I've been working a little over 25 years in information technology, information services, and specialized in security specifically for about 20 years, you know, as indicated by all my gray hair. Uh, <laughs> most of my career has been in healthcare technology, actually. What really attracted me to that was the security principles of confidentiality, integrity, availability. You know, those are very real. Those are very apparent. Uh, and patient care and a focus on the patient outcomes, you know, a core mission there. Mm-hmm. And, and in that uh, space, I had the privilege of founding and starting the nation's first to market network medical device security and compliance company about a dozen years ago. And, you know, in that role as chief security officer, I was able to work closely with well over 100 healthcare CIOs around the U.S. and even abroad and worked with them on some extremely challenging security solutions you know, so in all that, I've seen and been part of advancing defense and protection over my career. But unfortunately, Jeff, I'm, I'm not too encouraged by the current state of threats and attacks, you know, despite all those advances. Yeah, it seems like ransomware itself has been around for quite some time. I, I don't remember when kind of that first attack was launched. 
but it now seems like it's grabbing headlines at an alarming rate, almost daily, if not yeah. more often. So what's changed from your perspective? Yeah, a few different things. You know, I think personally for us, Jeff, you know, as individuals is, you know, ransomware, we see these headlines around breaches and it was kind of one of those things, you know, individually or when you see it on the news versus, you know, in the profession is that it's gone from just us thinking about, okay, I've lost my, I've lost my personal information because there's been a breach or, you know, and that's valuable, but it seems a little bit, um, uncommon or maybe, or maybe when you read the headline, you think, oh, maybe that wasn't me. Or even if it was my data, you know, what's the likelihood out of the whatever millions of records that were breached, somebody's going to yeah. do something to me. So it wasn't very personal, but I think in your introduction there, I think you pointed out very readily that, you know, now this is, this is affecting all of us because it's affecting our critical infrastructure. And so, you know, even the event you mentioned with the pipeline is, you know, when you're pulling up to the gas station and, there's a huge problem that affects all of us. And so it's not yeah. just kind of a, a pot shot. It, it is something that's concerted. You know, honestly, Jeff, you, <laughs> I don't have to tell you, you run major technology product and development and releases. So you know that when when you produce something that's, that's effective, the greater the adoption of that software or that service, the greater the revenue, the margin that comes from them, then you can start pouring those resources you know, back into your product and make it better. And you can and even work in some more creativity into that. Unfortunately, what we're talking about, what these headlines are showing us is that we're not talking about some cool new tech system that you know, we can buy. We're talking yeah. about a predatory software ecosystem and, and make no yeah. mistake, this is highly organized crime. And it's yeah. currently, unfortunately, it's, it's more efficient. It's more effective at holding us hostage and extorting payments than, the organizations are at managing that risk. Well, it's become big business, right? I oh, mean, yeah. it, you can buy ransomware as a service, right? These criminal organizations are making probably billions of dollars oh. at, at this stretch. Yeah, easily. You know, when the money got big is that's when organized crime really starts turning onto this and they run it just like a business, right? So you've got You've got suppliers, you've got the people who are making the software and they may not be deploying it. They may not even be the ones you know, doing the ransom. They're just supplying tools. And then people mm -hmm. are buying those tools on black markets. And then you've got people who are deploying those tools and just seeing if they can get a foothold. And when they get a foothold, then they'll sell, they'll turn over control to another market. So then people go in and buy, you know, hey, I want you know, control of 300 machines or 200 machines and verified. And these are very professional in a run transactions. And then, and then you get the people who actually launch the attack and do the ransom. And then kind of that final stage of when the data is released, no matter what, you know, whether it's social security numbers or intellectual property or whatever it is, then there's a whole nother market for that on the back end. So it's not even just, I mean, the numbers you say is it's not even just the ransoms that are being paid. It's also all those intermediary steps that are just generating, yeah. just like we would think in business, right? They're, they're generating revenue, they're generating margin yeah. there. And so then with success, they're just plowing it back. And the more we pay in, the more they're, you know, there's an incentive there. There's yeah. a market effectively that they're just going to keep exploiting. Well, you mentioned this earlier is that as we deploy software, we get more sophisticated. We put more features and functionality. Yep. And that's really what's happening to the ransomware, right. right? Is it used to be what you'd see is someone click on an email and boom, their laptop gets locked up. 
now these things are sitting around dormant, waiting to be launched. Have you seen that evolve into longer and longer periods of dormancy as they're doing this? Yeah, it's getting um, nefarious, I think, is the word that comes to mind, Jeff, <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. is from my perspective. But with that, it's just more sophistication. So instead yeah. of kind of the, the quick hit of let me get in, like you're saying, you know, if I can trick one person to click one time on one thing, then I'm in there. And if I can, you know, if I can get a quick $5,000 or $50,000 out of somebody, then then I'm good. But what was realized is if I can get my hooks in there and I can take control of these systems and I can just lay low. And yeah. sometimes even, which is really weird, is some of these threats will actually patch, will fix the hole in which they came through. It's almost like pulling the ladder up behind yourself. Is Oh, wow. They'll get in. And they'll fix the problem so there's no competition, right? So they're keeping they're keeping the nefarious competition out and they patch the hole, but they're in. They've already got their hooks. And then lots yeah. of times what they do is they sit around. And that sitting around could be, like I said earlier, is it could be maybe they're just sitting there accumulating more and more hosts so that they can sell a big batch. Maybe their buyer yeah. won't buy until they get over 500 or something. Or lots of times they're sitting there. And they're basically what they're doing is penetrating into your backups. So you're sitting there backing up that threat over and over. And then they might wait. You know, they might know that most people only keep their backups for 30 days. And so they wait till that 31st day. Or sometimes they're even scouting your backup system. They're watching and looking to see how frequently are these backups happening and what's going on. And then, you know, kind of that... That final piece we're seeing, which is, you know, especially for somebody, anybody who's ever been on call is this is the worst one is almost intentionally they'll, they're waiting until Friday midnight, Saturday midnight, or right before like uh, guarantee yeah. uh, you're going to see midnight on the 3rd of July, you're going to see launches because they know nobody's in there and nobody's going to yeah. respond or it's, or it's lower. And then the same thing with, you know, if you call your, your lawyer, or if you call your insurance company, there's going to be less people on staff. And so they're intentionally targeting when you're weak, just, you know, yeah. just to be successful. Slows down the reaction time. Oh, absolutely. Right? Because everybody, everybody's out. And the other thing, and I know you and I have talked about this. I can remember a conversation we had several years ago about log files and all of this data that's being collected in log files. And no one has the time to go look through that for the threats. So how are these log files being impacted by ransomware? Yeah, we're seeing a couple different ways. Um, you know, one, we see individuals who, who just don't turn on the log files. And many times they, they won't do it because they think, and I, I would contend this is, you know, not the right way to think, but they think that oh, I don't have some super special security system that can analyze all these logs and can process these and report on them. And, and so until I can afford one of these big, you know, security incident and event management systems, then, you know, I probably shouldn't turn these logs on or I don't have enough disk space to turn these logs on or, or some kind of compromise that unfortunately stops people from enabling them. And, you know, and so the the first contention I'd make there is turn them on. <laughs> Even if you don't have a sophisticated system, to report on these and correlate them and you don't have an AI system looking through them is at least turn them on because then you have the information because if you do get attacked and you need to go back to that, like we were talking about the 31st day backwards, mm -hmm. at least if you had, you know, if you were recording something, you have it there. Now, it's not to say that the threat won't try to erase those logs or won't, you know, try to clear out the, 
um, you know, clear out the logs so that you can't see what they did. But again, if you're backing up those logs as you're recording them, then you have that forensically to look at. Yeah. And that can make the difference between knowing when did this get in here? You know, Jeff, I've had really tough conversations with companies that have been hit. And one of their earlier questions is, okay, well, let's, you know, let's go get backups. When should we go get the backup from? And especially if they have low, let's say they have low bandwidth and, they, and they've done the right thing and they're pushing this off to a secondary site or a secondary provider. If they have low bandwidth, maybe they had enough bandwidth, Jeff, to, to get the, the deltas, to get the changes off to the backup provider off site, but yeah. they have low bandwidth to pull them back. And I've seen one customer in particular that was struggling with, they calculated it was going to take 28 days for them to restore oh, their cow. mail system and their file system because of how little bandwidth they had to bring. They were only thinking about what does it take to get the backup off, not what does it take to get the backup back up on site. Yeah. And then, you know, a difficult conversation I had with a customer more recently was they said, okay, so do we go back? Because they want the most recent data, obviously. You don't want to lose data. So they said, okay, well, what if we went back three days? The the decision point then is, is, you know, so I go three days back in time and pull that back up, but it takes, let's say, a day conservative or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully take a day to to restore and labor and all that to bring it back. And then you you waste a whole day. You go back as recently as you can. And then you figure out, oh, the threat's still there. I can't, you know, I can't get rid of it. And then you have to do this over and over. You're weighing how far back in the past, because I'm losing data every time I'm going backwards. How far back can I go? but not have the threat still be there when I, when I pull it back. And that, those are really tough decisions to make. Oh, I bet. And, you know, the other thing that I've seen is that in addition to the attacks getting more sophisticated, cyber insurance companies have become more aware and have learned more and they've become more sophisticated. And they're really looking at organizations to see what protections they had in place when these attacks occurred, right? To, yes. to help mitigate their exposure. Yeah. So the, you know, the, pa- <laughs> Jeff, the power of the actuarial table, right? So, <laughs> I mean, no joke, the more this is happening, the more data they're collecting. And that's, you know, in part, that's actuarial sciences to understand what is the risk. We think about this in terms of like our home insurance or our car insurance is, is, you know, what's the likelihood I live in an area that's really prone to, to hailstorms. So mm-hmm. the roof on this house is only four or five years old. And <laughs> you can bet, you know, I'm paying through insurance for the fact that it's a four or five year old uh, roof. Also, it reminds me of when I was younger, my father had a, an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme and his insurance got jacked up one year. And they kind of, he kind of asked the insurance agent, you know, why, why is my insurance rate so high on this car? And the insurance agent said, you know, it has nothing to do with your driving. It has nothing to do with the risks you're taking. It just so happens that your this vehicle is now the most commonly stolen vehicle in the United States mm-hmm. at this time. Yeah. And therefore, we've got to raise your rate. So, you know, Jeff, you, you not only are they getting better at understanding the cost, but then they start understanding what are those factors that make, yeah. you know, business A more vulnerable than business B and we have started to see these, you'll see it in two, two forms and fashions, right? Is you'll see one insurance carrier maybe start to put loopholes, quite honestly. And I can explain a few of these that we've seen, put some loopholes in the contract uh, that you have to be very mindful of. And then the other one we've seen is they can start effectively forcing you to, um, to start to follow best practices if you aren't. So one we've seen, I think we've seen two of our customers in the last 90 days 
One was when they were resubscribing their insurance policy, so kind of renewal. And then the other one was just in the middle of the policy uh, period. And it's, they both came forward and said, you have to have multi-factor and you have to implement it within the next X days. Oh, or, wow. or else we're not going to cover you at this coverage level anymore. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is a huge change. Back when I sat in the CIO chair, the cyber insurance was really kind of a check the box kind yes. of thing. They didn't really look too deeply at what you were doing. You answered some questions and they weren't even really detailed questions at, at that point. Right. And now they're asking those questions, right, Jeff? Yeah and, yeah. and then the other thing is these loopholes, you know, I'll tell you two loopholes we've seen that are just disheartening. And, and I guess my message here is, is read those contracts. Read it's not it's not check the box like you said it was originally. Is One of them we've seen is a training loophole. So the insurance you know, vehicle may say, um, as a CIO or as an organization, you need to train all the people in your company on security awareness. And you need to keep those records and you need to be able to show every person has had that training consistently, you know, at least annually. And we saw this loophole enacted where in this case, it was the second strike. So this is the second time this customer had had fraud due to, you know, a cyber attack. And the second time the insurance company came around and said, before we pay this claim, uh, we want you to show us the training record, not for your company, but for that individual who just clicked on that Uh thing that caused this to happen. And if you cannot produce the training record for that person right there in the last 365 days, then we are not paying this claim. Wow. That level of detail. Yeah. The other one we saw was uh, was a loophole around, this was really interesting. So the I won't go into the whole attack scenario, but the, you know, so there's compromise was made and the compromise was of the control, the financial control of the company. The compromise was in their email system. And so the the attacker was in the email system and through that was able to commit wire fraud and con, you know some financial malfeasance there. And the initial claim came back rejected because they said, well, we were insuring your systems and your network. We were not insuring the online mail, you know, Microsoft Office oh, 365. Wow. We're not insuring Microsoft and their security and their defense. So we're not going to pay because the attacker technically didn't attack your network. They attacked Office 365. Wow. And I guess the point I'd, I'd shift you there is that's the hard part is when you're already suffering a loss, the last thing you want to deal is now with, okay, now do I have to do litigation against my insurance provider? Yeah. It just yeah. awful. Yeah. And if I'm sitting in the CIO chair today, I'm overwhelmed by all of this, right? The attack surface just continues to grow. Servers, desktops, laptops, mobile devices, IoT devices, anything that is connected is a possible vector. Hmm. Beyond disconnecting from the internet, (laughs) what can our IT leaders do to mitigate this risk, Derek? The joke about the disconnecting from the internet may may not be totally off in the sense that I guess guess the the takeaway I'd have there is is don't connect things or share things as openly as we maybe once did. Uh, So so that's kind of the first thing. Oversharing can get you into trouble. But, you know, the real and and you raise these points, I think, in the introduction is kind of the first thing I'd advocate is focusing on recovery is know that this could happen to you. And, and if, if you're not reading the news even you know, diligently on, on IT matters, is 
everyone's starting to see this as affecting us. So yeah. the key is to have recovery. You've got to have copies of your data. Anything that's valuable in your organization, data, intellectual property, communicate telecommunications, anything that is necessary for your business to function, uh, your organization, then you need to protect all that. So to prepare for recovery is to have multiple copies of that data. And there's a cost here, but is make sure you're not uh, rotating those as frequently maybe as you once were. So if you were rotating those monthly, try annually if you can afford it. Uh, if yeah. you're if you're doing that annually, maybe even stretch it out a little longer. Is have more frequent and retain those copies longer because those can be extremely valuable. I wrote Jeff. I wrote an article long many years ago. I wrote an article that was uh, you know backups are boring until they're not. And, and and that's where we're at is people typically don't put a lot of money or thought into backups kind of goes on autopilot. And except for when you need them, it's the most important thing. It could be the difference between your company making it or not. And so, you know, having those copies, they need to be all over the place. So, you know, within reason, especially if you're encrypting them is put them in more places, put them in one provider or two providers, put them in you know, if you're in the cloud, put them in one country if you can. So data sovereignty, put them in a different country, or or have a copy on the East Coast and the West Coast. It is just have that capability. And then if you're using, hopefully, companies are using more not just backups, but more active resiliency, like you know failover and recovery and replication uh, tactics. Then you know have more checkpoints, have it so that it's mm-hmm. it's taking those copies more often. Uh, keep the journals further out so that. You know, you, you try to recover from five minutes ago. Oh, no, the threat was still a problem. We can't contain it. Then, you know, try to go back 10 minutes and and do this over and over. You probably know this inherently, Jeff, is just the systems that probably are the most valuable are probably the ones that are also very active. And that means yeah. they're reading and writing data a lot, which means you probably need to have more checkpoints, but that's going to be more costly. So you got to balance, you know, that yeah. investment, but you can't neglect it. Well, and that points to some of the... I'll call it newer, and I'll use air quotes that our audience can't see, technologies of replication and disaster recovery. And now that I say that, it's been around for about 10 years, uh, DREST, Disaster Recovery as a Service. Is that a good mitigation against this? Because you're talking about restoring data in your story there multiple times. Is that where that comes in? Yeah. And so kind of going back to that example I mentioned earlier with the backups, so that with the company that it was going to take when they dawned on that, it was going to take 28 days for them to pull that data back. Now, imagine if instead of, you know, so you've got one compromised environment, right? You've got a, you know, problem in the one environment and it's impact, you know, in this case, they had the ransomware and the systems were unavailable. They were um, crypto, they couldn't access them. And so they were trying to pull all that data back and it was just going to take, you know, weeks. Imagine if instead of, you know, you can still focus on restoring that environment, but imagine while you're working on that, you could just call a provider up and say, why don't you spin up my production environment in your data center? And if there's a threat there, let's try and contain that or figure that out. You know, in this case, the customer, it was their exchange server and their in their file server. So you could tell your recovery provider, you know, go ahead and spin up my environment, but contain, you know, don't attach these to the network yet, but spin them up. And most providers can do that very quick, you know, hours. They can spin up your whole environment and then, you know, you can keep your production going and not have to mess with trying to juggle all that at the same time. You know how it is, especially whether you're, or you're the executive, you're the one being, you know, 
berated by the executive. <laughs> you're under pressure. You need some help and you don't want to be trying to fight multiple fires at the same time. And so yeah, yeah. having somewhere where you can spin that up and not have to worry is a big relief. And then that lets you focus on figuring out how did it get here and how do I stop this? And is it still yeah. present even if I clean it up? And and you can do that much more readily when when you've got a, basically a second environment. Because yeah, knowing how it got in there is the key to keeping it from happening again, right? If you can't locate how it happened, you're still at huge risk. Yeah. And that's unfortunately, I don't know that this is changing fast enough, Jeff, but I hear very frequently from customers kind of, they they just want to move past the crisis, which is natural. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you don't know how it got there, then you don't know, you know, you don't know it was that an insider. Was it somebody who works here or still works here who planted this? Yeah. Was it an accident? Was it somebody who just, you know, we need to give them a couple extra training or we need to go through their mailbox and clean up some junk? Is it, was it something, you know, services that we had attached to the internet? Um, one we saw was they had their um, HVAC system, their air conditioning system that was attached. Their vendor of that system told them to put it on the internet. So they did. And that's how yep. they got slammed. So if you know what they call, we, in security, we call the attack vector. If you know how it got there, you have a chance to stop that from happening again. But yeah, you're right. Is I mean, imagine if you went through all that effort and energy to restore something and then it just happened again or it happened worse yeah, yeah, the, you know, yeah. the next time. Well, and when it comes to those cyber attacks, the old adage used to be, it's not if, it's when. But now it's being restated as it's not if and it's not when, it's when again. Uh, So talk us through what we should do when, when we suffer an attack. What should we do? What steps should we take? Well, the naive answer I'll give you, Jeff, is you should <laughs> you should uh, you should pull out your incident response plan and make sure everyone you know was very well trained. They should know what they're doing and they should execute that response plan. But I thought for a second you were going to say pull out your resume, brush oh, yeah, it there off. You go. Yeah. So, so well, you know something we do commonly is we help our customers develop those incident response plans and, and programs and, and train to them and, and all that. But I'm also not you know naive enough to, to realize that that's not a, always a priority and it's not always proactive as much as I'd like it. And I sincerely believe that that would help us mm-hmm. all. But, you know, so if it hits the fan it is really then as you're looking to, especially if it's an IT person who would recognize it, but regardless, even if it's an individual at, the, at their computer with their email is, you know, you got to escalate to your management. You got to escalate to basically an officer of the company, somebody who can, who can make the decision and has control of the resources and generally that person, that officer or that executive should, one of their first calls should be to legal counsel, is, especially yeah. if there's any chance that there was a, a breach or that it would contractually compromise the company and providing services or anything. Um, and then also, too, if, if you're even thinking about paying a ransom, I would hope you're not. But if you are, then you know you want to think through the legalities and, and intricacies of that because you, you're probably going to be paying a you know, criminal, criminal syndicate. Yeah. The next one in, and we were talking about insurance, is really you want to involve your insurance carrier pretty quickly because, you know, twofold. One, just like if you got in an accident or something, right, is you want to call them, even if it's maybe not your very first call, is you want to call them very quickly because, you know, they're going to provide you resources and guidance, especially if you're not thinking quite straight or if you're kind of in a panic. And they'll 
they'll provide, you know, going to give you some tips and help there. They may even many contracts now or, or insurance vehicles now have uh, a lot of initial do's and don'ts. So if you were to destroy the evidence, they may, that may cut you out of some claim reimbursement. Yeah, if yeah. you were to, you know, if you were to take certain actions, you know, that may impact. Uh, and then the last thing with the insurance carriers we've seen, Jeff, is many times whether people know it when they're signing that document is many times it'll dictate who you can use and what they need oh. to do. And if you went on your own and called somebody or you basically, if you, you know, if you violated those terms, you may be compromising your ability to file a claim or even if it's, you know, not a total loss is you may slow down. You may not be able to expedite that claim process. So, yeah, you know, that's, that's the big ones. And then that's kind of the organizational. And then the next things, you know, more of the IT side is, you know, you're trying to contain that threat. You're trying to preserve the evidence. And, and that's a hard one as many times people just want to blow it away and start over. Um, but we would always encourage, you know, and, and again, insurance companies are sometimes requiring this is preserve that evidence, record. Yeah. You were asking about logs earlier is, is record everything that's happening. If you've got, uh, like you were talking about with DRAS, if you've got a recovery provider, you know, notify them and get them on standby. Even if you're not telling them, you know, go is just let them know I've had an incident. I've had an event. Uh, I may need your services very soon. So then you also want to, rec- you know, eradicate that threat, right? So you've contained at this point, you're, you're trying to contain it, preserving the evidence, and now you're notifying hopefully your recovery provider. Now you want to focus on getting rid of that threat, get it out of there. Um, and then as we just discussed, then you can focus on let's determine how this, what's the point of entry, how this get in here so that we can stop that from happening again. Well, one of the other things I read, Derek, and I think it was the Colonial Pipeline incident. I was reading an article about that today. And one of the first calls that they made after calling the insurance company, calling legal counsel, as you recommend, they called the authorities. Here in the U.S., they called the FBI. Is that something that you see a lot that when you're experiencing these attacks, people are reaching out to law enforcement? And how do you recommend them proceeding on that respect? Oh, that's a great question, Jeff. So there was there's an organization called InfraGuard, and this is the FBI's kind of how they reach out to, uh, to you know two private organizations and kind of and, and establish that relationship. It's a great great group. And the advice they use when I was starting up, the advice was basically call us only if you've incurred actual damages. I think it was uh, this is many years ago, but I think it was in excess of forty thousand dollars. Call us. And so there was kind of a threshold. There was a bar. It was just, you know, if it's small, don't try to bother us. Or, or maybe it wasn't bother us, but, you know, we, we've got a lot of cases. But now I think it, it is much more. So to your point is after legal counsel or in conjunction with legal counsel uh, and then also with um, insurances, generally, yes, law enforcement is going to be an organization that you want to get involved. Just like, you know, if you even if you get in a fender bender and you don't think there's much damage on your car, Typically, you're going to still want to call law enforcement and they can file a claim and it makes it much more uh, official that there was damage or loss. Well, Derek, I know you've been here on Status Go multiple times. I know you you probably listen to every episode. I know you don't miss an episode and you know we're all about a solid call to action for our listeners. We want them to walk away with some things that they can do immediately because they listen to our conversation. So what are one or two things our listeners should do tomorrow because they listen to our conversation today? Great question, Jeff. So I'll, I'll give you three. You asked for one or two, I'll give you three. So we've, we, the first is know where your crown jewels are and protect them. 
So for a business, usually this is called a business impact assessment. You're trying to understand, you know, what's the valuable business processes that require information systems or information data and know what those are and protect them. The second would be, you know, invest in recovery. Uh, imagine you're on the schoolyard, if you're the CFO or CEO and somebody's putting you in a headlock and they want you to say uncle, but instead of saying uncle, you know, you're going to be paying millions of dollars. So think through, you know, if a, if a criminal organization had me as a hostage and I had to pay a certain amount, how much is that amount you're willing to pay to, to save your company? And instead of waiting for a criminal to take that money is invest that money in, you know, effectively building the ark now before it rains. And that could be an incident response plan or program, like I mentioned. And then lastly, and this is very important, Jeff, is you know, realize this isn't just an IT problem. This starts with the business mission, the leadership, uh, fiduciary responsibility you have to protecting your resources, your customers. I can't stress that enough. Is This is not just an IT problem. This is, this is a business problem. Derek, those are all great actions. I love each and every one of them. I think one of the ones that really stands out to me is that third one, is that this is not a technology problem. This is not an IT problem. This is a business problem. It takes us all working together to understand the risk, the cost of the risk, and how much we need to spend to mitigate the risk. All of that together has to work in conjunction with each other, not to mention just the education of the cyber attack threat landscape today so that people are more aware. As usual, Derek, when you and I talk, I could talk forever because I enjoy our conversation so much. But I really need to wrap for today. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today about the restorative side of cyber attacks. So thank you very much, Derek. Thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun. For Derek Brost, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.